before we even get into the AI, I want to mention that there are 122 million girls globally who are out of school and therefore it is a really important mission that we need to kind of work on. With AI, without AI, but we just definitely need to work on it. Welcome to Wise On Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Aurelio Amaral, and I'll be hosting the show today uh, where we're going to explore a question, can AI reach out-of-school kids, particularly in the context of gender equity in education? We'll ask if AI will help close uh, gaps or if there are challenges that might actually uh, put us in a situation that AI might even widen gaps that already exist. And to answer these questions, I'm thrilled to welcome here today our guest, Safina Hussain, the 2023 Wise Prize for Education Laureate. Safina is the founder and board member of Educate Girls and is a leader in empowering girls in hard to access uh, remote areas in India with over 16 years of experience and a remarkable track record uh, of enrolling uh, more than a million girls in school. Safina brings uh, so many insights uh, into the impact and efficacy of grassroots initiatives uh, in education. And her work has not only helped improve enrollment, but also uh, enhanced learning outcomes for uh, millions of children in India. So Safina has also pioneered mechanisms um, to uh, create uh, more incentives to finance education. She created the first uh, development impact bond in education. Thank you so much for being with us. And I'm going to start first uh, congratulating you again for receiving the Wise Press for Education. Uh, and let me start by asking you uh, to put in context the areas where you and Educate Girls operate. Um, and then I'll dive into the more specific questions that we have for you. Thank you, Aurelio. Uh, and before we even dive into the questions, I just want to say thank you to, to WISE for this incredible honor. And uh, I have to say this is WISE 11, but I have been uh, attending WISE since the first one. And I think I've been here ev like 10 out of the 11 WISE I have attended. So it is an, it's an incredible honor and it's uh, fabulous to be here with you today on this conversation. Uh, and I know you mentioned that the conversation you wanted it to be about how AI can accelerate for out-of-school uh, girls and out-of-school children. Before we even get into the AI, I want to mention that there are 122 million girls globally who are out of school. And therefore, it is a really important uh, purpose and mission um, that we need to kind of work on with AI, without AI. But we just definitely need to work on it. Absolutely. And uh, I echo that. And uh, yesterday we were chatting about you know, the, the magnitude, uh, uh, you know, India on its own, it's a, it's a continent. Uh, just one state, uh, UP, is the size of my country, Brazil. Uh, so by just reaching uh, a good number of out-of-school girls and children uh, in those areas represent already a, a, a huge number uh, globally as well. So I want to uh, start by acknowledging that and uh, asking you to, to really contextualize uh, these uh, remote villages where most of these out-of-school girls are yeah. um, and how uh, the Educate Girls model uh, uh, work uh, to help identify them and, and bring them back to school. Yeah, 
Um, so, uh, you know, the context in which out-of-school girls um, are where you have explosions, large numbers of out-of-school girls are in areas where there are two or three factors that intersect. One factor is poverty, another is patriarchy, which is basically social marginalization. And the third is where policy breaks down. Um, so you think of like rural, remote, tribal areas. So even though there is a policy of free and compulsory education, but you know, it's awareness and everything kind of weakens in very um, marginalized areas. And when those marginalized areas are combined with marginalized population, whether economic or social marginalization, you get this entire explosion of out-of-school girls. So this, this context is important to understand if you want to find out-of-school uh, girls, right? So therefore, where do these geographies exist? Um, you know, so in India, we're looking at areas which are poorest and uh, which are really remote, which is where the largest numbers um, will be. And traditionally, we've been going with going door to door and finding all the out of school girls. And we realized like it's a very tough job and it takes a lot of time and effort. Because like I said, India has 700,000 villages, uh, you know. So, um, yeah, and this is where AI kind of came in to help us sort of identify at speed where those clusters are where we should, we should intervene first. Perfect. Um, so yeah, uh, if you could explain as well uh, how uh, this partnership uh, with a, a tech company worked uh, to really uh, improve the, the, the mapping and targeting of out-of-school growth and how that uh, impacted the, the work that you guys are doing. Yeah. And, and this is really uh, interesting because we used to go door to door and, um, you know, we would cover all the villages in a district. So district is like, you know, you have a country and states and then states broken up into districts. So let's say I'll give you an example. We were working in one of the sort of ve like over 90 percent tribal. So this district is very tribal, very remote, uh, almost 800 villages. And when we conducted a door to door survey, like a census across all the villages in the district, we found that out of school, 80% of the out of school girls were actually in 30% of the villages. So imagine the time and effort of knocking on, you know, hundreds of thousands of doors to realize that 30% of the villages is where the problem was really highly concentrated. And this was a pattern we were seeing repeated across all of our districts. And we would be so frustrated thinking if only we knew which 30% of the villages to enter, we could have gone at speed, like, you know, uh, at much, much faster rate. So we partnered with ID Inside, who took our door-to-door -door survey data, they combined it with other publicly available data, like the census data, the dice data, all the sort of things, and then fed it into an algorithm and built this predictive model. It has been a journey. I wouldn't say that, you know, everything happened on day one. First, we were able to rank the villages in a district where we could expect to find the highest or the lowest. Now, slowly, as the, you know, they call it like what, taming the algorithm or whatever, <laughs> but year on year, as you feed more and more data into it, now we're actually able to predict the exact number of girls we can expect to find uh, in a village. Therefore, we're able to then build these operational clusters and saturate them at speed. So give you an example of speed in the first 10 years of our existence, in the old way that we were doing it. We covered around 400,000 out-of-school girls in terms of identifying and mobilization. Through this pre precision targeting approach, we were able to do a million in five years. So, so that's the sort of speed and scale that we could bring to the problem. Perfect. 
And let me ask you about the uh, challenges that AI uh, hasn't solved or hasn't yet solved. So once uh, you identify uh, the villages where most out-of-school girls are, there's still the human element after that, right? Like knocking on doors and speaking to uh, parents to really convince them and make them understand about the importance of uh, enrolling uh, their kids into school. Um, are there any uh, ideas on how to also make this process accelerate and, and, and scale up? Or is it still something that, no, it requires uh, a lot of like human capital, human brain, human heart to, to, to make it happen? I think for us, definitely, the finding of out-of-school girls, we were able to accelerate with uh, AI. But we work in very remote areas where a digital access is a huge issue. And if you're working on gender, we all know that the digital gender divide is massive. You know, even if there is a phone in the household, let's say in a village household, the girl getting access to it is absolutely at the last <laughs> resort. So you cannot build for that today. You cannot, you know, bring in and say AI or technology will solve those problems. Those are human problems that will have to be solved at a, at a human um, uh, agent or a human level. Um, so, for example, and also in gender, right? How do you convince people? AI is not going to be able to convince people. So you can go door to door. You can find which door you need to knock on. But the eventual message has to be delivered by the human front end, right? By our team Balika volunteers, by our own field staff. Convincing parents takes human stories and human connections and relationship building and trust building. Um, and beyond that, I think even like working with the girls, I mean, when you have first generation learners, when you have very marginalized population, you can't just leave them with a tablet and be like, okay, problem will get solved. That doesn't happen with our own children. You know, our own children need a lot of love and attention and they need their parents to sit with them and they pick up, you know, vocabulary from their parents and all of that. So I don't think that we can see that technology can solve all the problems of education. I think we have to pick and choose. It's like a tool. It's like a knife in the kitchen. You can use it for chopping, but it can also like hurt your hand mm. uh, if you're not careful. Mm. And so it's a tool and you just have to realize like, where is this tool most mm. appropriate? And in our context, I think finding... Um, and predicting these areas is where it's most appropriate. But I think in terms of human relationships and engagement and gender, which is about building aspiration, confidence, support of all the gatekeepers around that girl, that has to stay non-technological. <laughs> Perfect. And you mentioned some uh, biases and social norms that uh, you know prevent uh, girls from accessing uh, opportunities in general. Do, do you see uh, technology... Uh, in some ways as uh, a, a danger that could exacerbate yeah. some of these uh, opportunities that uh, girls don't access so much and could access even less. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, the data and I think, uh, you know, women who are listening to this will also understand that just the way the real world can feel unsafe, the online world, the trolling, the bullying, the objectification, it follows the technological world, right? It's not like because it is the internet, we are now suddenly all, uh, you know, <laughs> gender equal. So I think the, the big worry is that is all these artificial intelligence models that are based on the internet today and the information on the internet today, which is already biased against women, is just going to actually amplify. Mm. And, and how much is it going to amplify? You know, in bank loans, how are algorithms looking at risk profiles of, of women, 
versus you know men how are so these are all things that will impact um women and girls deeply um so i don't think ai can be an answer and especially for marginalized populations especially from a gender lens i really worry about technology so you you mentioned the responsible use of technology the responsible use of data i wanted to ask you uh by working you know with survey data uh combining it with government data as well like what are the precautions that you and your team need to take to ensure you know data protection what also the challenges to make that happen uh given that you know you not always uh get standardized uh, uh databases and you need to also compromise on certain things so i'd love to hear your thoughts on on how to make best use of data in a responsible way and how you've been doing this yeah no i mean we we have a uh, we have very you know sort of high level experts even on our board that because we take this data protection very 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 seriously um so because we are handling community we have a real responsibility and accountability so making sure that you're compliant with all the laws making sure that that data is you know it's anonymized and it's not so all of those steps have to be have to be taken and secondly you cannot just land up at somebody's door and start asking for information <laughs> you cannot so anything that we do is in partnership with the government it is under an mou with the government because you have to follow the laws of the land uh in terms of doing this and it is really critical and i think even for smallest things we really um think about it you know so for example we were so excited that we could predict these areas and we were like should we put it online maybe people will be able to use it maybe it could be a public good and then we were like oh my god what if traffickers so started targeting these particular areas because they suddenly now know where to find you know the most vulnerable girls so you have to think about every single thing because you know we would have funders and supporters saying this should just be a public good and we were like no be careful think about it you know um versus just rushing into um into things so i think data is um it really to be handled with care perfect and going back to your point you mentioned the relationship with governments and one of uh educate girls key strength is also the ability to build uh, sustainable partnerships with with governments and work together to ensure you know access to to education for girls could you explain how the partnership building model uh starts uh what are also the steps that need to be taken to ensure continuity to ensure uh you know a durable solution in the long term yeah uh no i think i think partnerships are absolutely critical we are simply catalysts right and so we are catalysts between the community and the government so essentially one part of our model which is led by community volunteers and is about community ownership and the community taking this purpose and this mission forward the second is the government where you're partnering on the existing policy so the right to education act um and actually sort of you know wherever that act is not reaching we are the sort of the catalyst to saying okay let's create the demand side um based on where the supply side is so i think partnership with the government is absolutely absolutely critical because it's only with the community and with the government can we actually accelerate towards the sustainable development goals um you are not going to get there by building parallel delivery systems the government already has a massive infrastructure they have already built all the schools the schools are free there's a free midday meal there are free textbooks 
our job is to really catalyze from the demand side um, and make sure that all of that is being utilized to its optimum and that those policies are reaching even the last girl. Perfect. And uh, do, do you see any uh, specific differences uh, when, uh, you know, dealing with a specific local government versus the other? And what are also the, uh, the measures that your team needs to take as well to cater to, you know, different regions uh, and, and different uh, stakeholders uh, in every uh, uh, local government? Yeah. Uh, no, I think I think you have to be, and this is a good uh, nuance, you know, because education is actually a state subject. So your your model has to be flexible enough to work in different contexts and to work with the different state governments. So you cannot just take one overarching thing and saying this has to work everywhere. So with every state government, there is a nuance and there is a localization and a contextualization that needs to be added. And I think, and therefore, your teams have to be local. So 99% of our staff actually comes from the same villages, from the same districts, from the same states, because they understand the context. And therefore, that helps with actually working with whether it's the village level institutions or district level or state level. There's also a, a, a trust element to that as well, right? Exactly, exactly. And you have to have that trust element, you know, uh, in, in today's world, you have to be able to, because with communities, if you don't have trust, you're not going to be able to do the work um, that you really want to do. Um, we mentioned briefly uh, your your work also in uh, innovating uh, financing models for education, right? So I would like to hear a bit more about how you came up with the idea of the development impact bonds for education. Uh, how uh, I mean, we know it was very successful, but if you could share some some lessons and also uh, inspirations for other models that could emerge not just in India, but globally as well. Yeah, I, know. I think so. Um, and thank you for this question, because I think a lot of people um, say, you know, we they think that the development impact bond is actually a fundraising tool, you know. So this is a great question, because the reason we actually innovated around the development impact bond was actually because we were scaling so fast, right? We went from like, 50 to 500 villages to like we went 5,000 villages. And I was really worried. I was like, are we having quality for that last girl? You know, the minute you, you can't, you can't visit 5,000 villages, you know, humanly not possible. So we were just really worried saying, are we just replicating the, the model or are we actually replicating the impact? And so the bond, which is a pay for performance as a payment by results contract was a great way to tie money to outcomes, to the actual result. And that's why we actually piloted saying, so that if we were getting to even the millionth girl, we would know whether we were still having the same level of impact and the same quality of impact for her. Um, and that's where the genesis really came. The second aspect was, I think, you know, resources are limited. I mean, the problems are so large, resourcing is limited, and therefore an innovative financing mechanism where you can tie money to results means that you are getting results for your last dollar or last um, rupee. So I think that was the real idea um, behind the developer impact bond. And it taught us an enormous amount in terms of, you know, how to work and performance management systems and what it takes to drive um, results. 
And I've forgotten the second part of your question. Um, how this model could work uh, in other geographies, other contexts, uh, and if you have examples of other successful models that were inspired, uh, that would yeah, uh, actually, <laughs> it has it has taken a life of its own. I think when we were piloting it, we thought you know we were the only ones, and God knows where it will go and all the rest of it. But today there are over two hundred and twenty-seven or two hundred and fifty odd development impact bonds in the world. And they are deploying close to a billion dollars worth of capital. So there's an enormous amount of capital that's flowing through these instruments. And they're being used for everything from employment bonds or skilling bonds or healthcare. So there's no actual area where a bond is not being tried. So it's great. It's actually incredibly successful. Amazing. Um, and Safina, with this... Uh possibility uh, for you know technology and AI specifically to accelerate even further um, your work in targeting out-of-school girls for example um, could this also transform the the financing mechanisms as well uh, the time frames and and the type of incentives that are that are given to to the funders yeah I mean, I think uh, this, these are real opportunities for donors because money is going to be limited. And with precision targeting, you can actually flow large amounts of capital. And uh, you can do the precision targeting for a lot of different things, right? You can do it for out-of-school girls, but you can also do it for, let's say, malnutrition. You could do it for unemployment. You can do it for a host of, of uh, causes. Um, so I think there's great, great, great potential in being able to use these instruments because otherwise we're kind of like running in the dark, right? Uh, people are setting up projects saying, oh, I have my factory here, so I'll run a project here, or this is my geography, so I'll run a project here. But we have to accelerate money to areas of highest need. Uh, and I think AI can definitely help us in that. Perfect. Um, so I'd like to move now to uh, your most recent uh, part of work with Educate Girls. Uh, also focusing on older girls uh, at the secondary high school level as well. Um, so if you could comment on this journey of like first making sure that the young girls are in school and then this next step of ensuring continuity uh, and building a full pathway for, for success, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, past 16 years our work has been aligned with the Right to Education Act, which goes from grade one to eight. Um, and now our girls are getting older because we're not that old an organization. Right? So our girls have gone through like at the eighth grade and now we're finding like there's not much pathway for them beyond the eighth because there's a limited number of secondary schools or like a lot of the, so they don't have access or uh, girls, you know, fail, let's say one subject in the ninth or one subject in the tenth and then they have no way of continuing their education. So currently in India, 57% of adolescent girls and young women will not complete secondary. And they will not even complete their 10th grade, which means they cannot get an entry-level job, which means they will have a hard time getting formal bank loans. They, you know, there's so many opportunities that will be denied to them. So you cannot have, like for us, it was really important saying, how can our young women have access to opportunities? Because otherwise their exclusion continues. If you can't enter the formal economy, then all you'll do is daily wage labor and farm labor. Um, so for them to have life chances, we wanted to make sure that they get their uh, secondary credentials. Beyond that, we want to then link them to the opportunities, whether it is skilling, whether it is, you know, um, employment or livelihood or all the social protection schemes, bank accounts, financial inclusion, because it's only those choices 
that will actually give our women and girls a voice and agency. Um, so it's really important that we feel that over the next 10 years, take it to its logical end to that journey and, and uh, stand with the girls to make sure that uh, they have agency. Great. And, and what are the tools that you envision to also accelerate this, uh, this next phase? Uh, one thing is to uh, you know, ensure access, which is on its own a big challenge. But once you go through all steps of education, the challenges get somehow, I would say, more sophisticated, right? Like, so you have uh, a whole new plethora of challenges for each pathway that uh, a girl might choose in further studies, uh, future uh, professional opportunities. And for each of them, you need to think of specific tools and specific solutions. So I would be curious to, to also hear from you if there are plans to perhaps uh, find, uh, I don't know, I say like a, <laughs> a magic solution. To <laughs> there are no magic solutions, you know. Yeah. But no, no, we'll get there. <laughs> we will find a magic solution. So, so you know, and these are all the things that we are still building and learning. Um, and we are looking at, you know, talking to partners and people who've already cracked this in, in their sort of areas. So very excited to be here at WISE to be able to have a lot of those really rich conversations because everybody has a piece of the puzzle, right? Um, but in terms of our work over the last um, couple of years, because this initiative is still new, what we've been doing is we've been finding out-of-school girls and then bringing them at the village level for just a six-month village-based camp, which is facilitated by somebody from the village itself, like an educated person from the village. And we're running them through the 10th grade curriculum, basic foundational literacy, numeracy, building life skills, digital skills, an entire sort of package of intense services for six months, and then having them sit for the 10th grade exam through the open school system. And, uh, and the results are about, you know, last cohort, I think 78% of our girls have passed. And these are girls, you know, one girl, have, you know, failed in the ninth, was out of school since 2018. So imagine four to five years, she's been sitting at home. And today, she, you know, she attended the six-month camp in her village for three hours a day. And today she's cleared her 10th grade. And I was talking to her and she's like, I'm actually now going to join nursing school. So I'm filling out my form and I'm going to go for this training and stuff. And you just suddenly see futures being unlocked with just the small intervention of six months, not a center-based, crack open the centers and bring it to their doorstep. And I think for girls, we have to also think about how do you deliver a lot of these things at the doorstep uh, so that they can. So we're very excited. I think, you know, the, the magic is coming. <laughs> it's taking, you know, and we'll get that. <laughs> Perfect. And speaking of magic, speaking of future, we're here today uh, at the Wise 11 Summit uh, where we're hearing a lot of interesting ideas uh, around the future of education. And I'd like to ask you uh, which ideas you heard that you think, oh, these are promising, these might stick, and which are the ones that, you know, perhaps might be just uh, a buzz moment and might not stick at all. And I would just, if I may, uh, ask you also to share your very first experience with technology in your career. You told me when we had uh, our first call. I was very intrigued by, you know, sometimes uh, there are interesting ideas that uh, startups come up with, but not all of them uh, will become the next Googles and Facebooks. But so I would like to have your take on that uh, from someone who has seen um, technology in the 90s uh, emerging and... <laughs> I like revealing my age, yeah. 
<laughs> technology in the 90s. Thank you very much. <laughs> Netscape, anyone? <laughs> um, so I'm going to reserve comment on, on, you know, which is the panel that I thought was really good and stuff. Because I think I think I'm actually taking away... Uh, some some ideas or the other from every conversation. So, uh, I you know, I'm not... It's not fair for me to sit on job and say, oh, that idea was really crap. Like, this was really good. Because, you know, I'm from the 90s. <laughs> I'm an old person. I should just reserve judgment. No, um, but really, and also the day is still young and we still have a lot more conversations to, to listen to. But my first experience with technology, and that was my first job, was in the Silicon Valley with an internet startup. And hold your breath. They were making a 3D web browser in 1995. A 3D web browser, which we do not have to date. But at that time, we believed that we were going IPO in 18 months. <laughs> Some people could say the name today for that is Metaverse. <laughs> it's Metaverse, yeah. But it was a 3D web browser. And, and the conversations you know, over, over coffee would be that HTML is out, VRML is in. <laughs> It was just this la-la land. It was like a brilliant sort of exciting, like anything is possible kind of a, a space. But I think it was very useful for me to have exposure to do that world, to to see how the tech people think and what is really possible, and uh, which I think has really helped me like in terms of accepting AI or looking at uh, stuff. But I'm also a grassroots girl. You know? So I'm very careful about what comes when. I'm not completely seduced by every tech idea to be like, oh my God, this is going to be the better than you know, sliced bread. That's not happening. Because <laughs> when you sit at a village, right? You sit at a village and you realize that primary school doesn't even have electricity. And then you hear people saying, hey, let's just bring a laptop or let's just bring whatever. And you're like, please, like, let's get real. Um, and so standing instructions, I think, in our organizations are that you cannot design anything. If you have to design anything, you have to sit at ground zero and design it. Nothing gets designed at the head office. Nothing gets designed through meetings and whatever. The team sits on the ground in the village for a week, 10 days, whatever it is. Any tools, any formats, any survey instruments, everything has to be developed on ground zero um, and nowhere else. Thank you so much, Safina, and it's a very powerful message. Uh, a technologist enthusiast, but at the same time, someone who knows that uh, human human hands uh, <laughs> and brains and hearts are are key to uh, provide opportunities uh, in education that we need for for all vulnerable girls and children uh, in India and globally as well. Thank you for that articulate summary. <laughs> I. I actually learned that from from your <laughs> interview, so <laughs> I'm borrowing words from you, Safina. Quoting <laughs> you. <laughs> so I'd like to thank you again for this conversation. It's been a pleasure to be also personally involved in the selection process of the Wise Prize Laureate. Um, I learned a lot uh, from you, from your work, from your team, uh, and I'm sure the whole team at Wise also experienced the same. Um, and it's been such a pleasure for us to to host you uh, over these days here in Doha to celebrate um, not just uh, the prize, but to celebrate the achievements of your career. Uh, and this is just uh, for us uh, the the nicest moment of our work, I would say. Oh, thank you so much. You're very kind. It's an absolute pleasure for me to be here at WISE, as it is every single time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Peace.